And uh, we're, we got a little bit of reading in front of us. We're going to read the whole chapter. Uh, we're really only going to focus on a few verses. But, you know, I, I find it hard to read just a little bit of Job 1. I feel like we really almost have to read all the first chapter to really see where Job's at. So let's begin reading in verse number 1 of our text. The Word of God says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses every one his day and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away, yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Thy sons and thy daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing to be in your house with your people. I want to thank you for what you've done in the spiritual life of our young people this week. Lord, how you've helped us, how you've met every need, and Lord, how you've won victories in their hearts. We just want to give you praise for all that you have done and will continue to do in their lives. Now, Lord, tonight there's been a, a stack of prayer requests that have been given. Lord, we could fill these cards a million times over, but uh, Lord, that would be to no avail if they don't get into your ears and your heart and your throne room. So we take them and we lift these petitions up to you and we ask that you would intervene, that you'd uphold families that are uh, grieved and bereaved at this time, that you would, uh, Lord, address health problems and situations in people's lives, meet their 
financial needs, meet their spiritual needs. But Lord, above all, in that which you do, do it in such a way that people would see Christ, that they'd see your grace and your goodness, and that they would call upon you and turn towards you when they see the reality of your power and your interest in their lives. I pray that you bless now the preaching of thy word. May it glorify Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we ask it. Amen. I'm very interested tonight in the three verses that close this chapter of Scripture. Now, I would venture to guess that we're probably not on, on unfamiliar territory for just about anybody in the room. We've probably all studied the book of Job and all read the book of Job, and uh, probably we couldn't count on, uh, you know, uh, 30 hands how many times that we've read this very text before us. But I want to take a moment tonight and I want to consider Job's actions and I want to, instead of looking at Job and considering what he did, I instead want to look at what he did as it stands alone and ask ourselves, what does it teach us about our life and our responsibility? You see, here's what happened to Job. His whole, his whole life fell apart. I'm talking about everything that Job had that a man would have said was good about his life on the externalities of it. Every bit of it was burned up in just a few moments' time. He went from one of the greatest men in the entirety of the world, one of the wealthiest, one of the most powerful, one of the most illustrious, to being essentially a beggar in a matter of just a few minutes. We read this here, and I, I've timed it before, and it takes about a minute and a half to read this whole portion, if you just read it, uh, of, of what happened whenever the servants come, the messengers, and deliver the news. And so Job, as he's standing there, his whole world crashes in on him. And Job does something that I think is very instructive for you and me. Because here's the truth about it. I don't know what lays ahead in your life or in mine. Now, I am hopeful and anticipate that uh, the goodness of God is just going to continue to shine through in a very visible and felt way in our lives. But you know, sometimes the goodness of God, uh, it don't look like goodness. Sometimes the mercy of God don't look like mercy. Sometimes the favor of God would not be anything that man would call favor. I trust that you're going to have an easy path ahead of you, but I would venture this statement tonight that if you live long enough, probably you may never go through quite what Job went through, but you'll have those moments where it feels like all of reality has come crashing in. Uh, when those moments come, what is it that we need to do? How should we respond? Uh, there are various ways. Some men, their life crumbles and they crumble with it. Uh, some men, whenever their life crumbles, broke in, they curse. Uh, some men, when their life crumbles, they, they cast caution to the wind and live, uh, you know, lewd lives and, 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 uh, permissive lives. But what did Job do? The greatest man alive at the time. What did he do when everything fell apart? When I read my Bible, verse number 20 says that Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and he worshiped. In other words, when everything got tough in his life, when everything fell apart, Job didn't run from God, Job ran to God. The sooner you and I learn when things fall apart, don't run from God, run to God, the sooner we'll have the key to peace and contentment in life. When I read this passage of Scripture, I want to preach with this thought tonight. And I just have a few simple thoughts. Like I said, I'm me, me and my digestive system are working on about 12 tacos right now, alright? So... Uh, you pray for me, amen. I'm about to break out in the sweats or something, but you pray for me tonight. But I want to give you a few simple thoughts from this passage of Scripture on the fundamentals of worship. You know, when we think of worship, we associate it with the church house. Now let me say that the house of God is a place of worship. The Lord Jesus, in referring to the temple, said that it ought to have been a house of prayer 
but it had become a den of thieves, God chooses to meet with us in certain places. But let me say along with that, that don't mean that worship has to be confined simply to these four walls. Uh, this is the appropriate place for worship, and it's a it's a uh, needful, it's a mandated place in the life of every believer. But if the only worshiping you ever do is on Sundays and Wednesdays when you come into the house of God, listen, you'll dry up in a heartbeat. You've got to be worshiping God more than just that. And when we read Job's worship here, what we find is we find worship that's not in the church house, worship that don't have a choir singing, worship that don't have a piano playing, worship that don't have nobody shouting, worship that don't have nobody other than Job testifying, we have worship almost like it's isolated in and of itself, uh, alone unto itself. It is merely stripped down, bare bones worship. Now, what can we learn about worship when we look at it that way? Notice three things with me tonight. First, I want us to notice the scene of his worship. Look at verse 20 again with me. The Bible says, Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped. Job was not in a place of what we would call public or corporate worship when this happened. He was not in a church house. He wasn't at a revival. His worship had none of the trappings that are conventionally thought of concerning worship. But it did have three things that I think are vital to a person's worship. Number one, I want you to notice the promptness of it. Don't you just love how your King James Bible reads? It says, Then Job arose. Then Job arose. Not he waited until things got better and he arose. Not he waited till the solution, Brother Ken, was already on its way and he arose. Not once he had everything figured out, it was just a matter of, of putting things into motion, he arose. But right there, when things were at their very worst, Job got up and said, I need to talk with the Lord. I noticed two things about it. One, I noticed it was immediate. He did not wait for any other circumstances to unfold. He did not wait for a better situation to arise. He did not wait until he felt like worshiping. Can I say to you tonight, maybe I'm speaking for Mr. Job, Brother Job here when I say this, but I would just say, and, and he can correct me right in front of you when we get to heaven if I'm wrong, but I'm going to use a little speculation tonight and probably just venture a guess that Job probably didn't feel like worshiping at this moment. Probably he wasn't sitting there going, boy, my heart is just overflowing with how good God is. But he didn't wait till he felt like worshiping. He didn't worship when he wanted to. Listen now, he worshiped when he needed to. Now listen, most of us will worship when we want to. I'm talking about children of God. I'm talking about saved folks. We'll worship when we want to. But there'll be some times that we'll need to that we won't want to. You say, when is that, preacher? Well, a good time is when everything falls apart. That's when we need to be worshiping God. By the way, a good time is when everything falls into place too. But Job did not wait. Usually when things go good, we, we automatically will worship God. But Job, when everything went bad, his immediate reaction was to stop and to get a hold of God and to spend time with Him. You know, one of the first things, if you ever fall, I don't know if you ever fall or, or anything like that. I, sometimes I'm clumsy and I'll fall. Or if you've ever had a car wreck or anything like that, one of the first things you'll try to do is you try to orient yourself. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, you, if you fall, the first thing you do is you look down to make sure the ground's still down and you look up to make sure the sky's still up. You want to you, you get your bearings about you. You know, that's sort of how worship is for the believer when everything falls apart. You know what worship does when your life caves in? 
It reminds you about the solid foundation of God's promises underneath you. It reminds you about the sovereign God that's reigning, sitting on the circle of the earth above you. It orients you to your circumstances. And only when you are oriented properly, not to your situation, but rather to the God that loves us and cares for us, only then are we ready to face the problems that we have. So I see that it was immediate. But number two, I notice it was instinctive. It was instinctive. Now you say, what do you mean, preacher? No one told Job that he had to do it. If the only time we worship is when somebody tells us we need to worship, we ain't going to worship very much, Ken. We ain't going to worship very much. I said that like I was accusing you. I'm sorry, I wasn't accusing you. Ken. (laughs) People sitting there saying, what did Ken do to make preacher mad? If the only time we worship... (laughs) Well, let's try to preach now. If the only time we worship is is when somebody prompts us to, when they tell us to, when they encourage us to, we're probably going to miss out on most of the most of the precious and intimate moments with God. Now, I don't know about you. I've had some precious moments in the house of the Lord. But it seems like the most deep and personal moments that God spends with me don't even happen inside these walls. And it's not because of you. It's not because of this place. But it's simply because in that moment of isolation, God can deal with us in a way that He often can't when the crowds are surrounding us. Job's worship was was prompt. It was immediate. It was instinctive. He didn't wait for things to get better. He didn't wait till he felt like it. He just immediately right then in the midst of his problems, in the midst of his troubles, he didn't wait to feel better. He didn't wait to look better. He didn't wait for things to sound better. He just stopped right then and there and said, me and God got to talk. I need to get some help. I need to know what God's doing. I need to get some wisdom from the Lord. So I see the promptness of his worship. Number two, I want you to notice the preparation of And now you say, well, preacher, I thought he stopped immediately. Well, he did, but grant me this. There were two things he did prior to worship. He stopped in that moment and said, i got to get a hold of God. But he said, before I do, there's two things I have to do. Number one, look what it says. He rent his mantle and he shaved his head. Now, what does this suggest to us? Well, number one, I want you to notice the renting of the mantle. It reminds us of what he exposed in his life. Uh, we, we might use this word, it, it pictured his honesty. You know, in the New Testament, I, I believe it's in the book of Hosea, although a Bible student might correct me about that. I don't have it in my notes, but I believe it's in the book of Hosea where the Bible talks about the children of Israel that they rent their heart and not their garments. And, and the imagery that's set forth there is the idea that they did in truth what the rending of the mantle is meant to symbolize. The rending of the mantle was meant to symbolize the laying open of our innermost being unto God. The laying bare of our soul and of our heart and our mind before Him. And it was saying of the children of Israel that what they needed to do was not an outward expression, but rather an inward action. And I think when we read this, we can at least grant this to Job that what he did outwardly was an expression of what he was doing inwardly. And when he rent his mantle, he was saying, Here I am, Lord and all of my brokenness, and all of my weakness. You know, for us to worship right, we've got to be honest with God. We have this choice in worship. It's either honesty or hypocrisy. There's no middle ground. It's one of the two. We're either going to be hypocrites, and we're going to put on in front of God, and put on that things aren't as bad as they are, that we don't need help, that that we're not as broken as we are, or we're going to get honest with God, rent rent, rent our mantle, Rend our heart before Him and say, you know, Lord, here I am. And let me just say this to you tonight. This is just a little bit of counsel. You might as well because He already knows you anyway. He already knows you anyway. There is no element of your brokenness that God is not already aware of. So go ahead and just be honest with God. 
Because when you're not honest with God, it's really not Him you're deceiving because He can't be deceived. It's only yourself that you're deceived. If we're going to worship God, we've got to get honest. So I see what He exposed. Number two, I see what He expressed. The Bible said He shaved His head. Now, I was looking around to see if I got any of my shaved head folks in the house. I think they're all all out of here. I won't say anything about naturally shaved heads tonight. Amen. I don't want to make it. But, but we've got a few folks around here that like to shave their head. I've thought about doing it, um, and I've not. For one reason, one reason, Brother Ken, one reason. And it's it's when I'm sitting there, if my head was shaved, it looks like I have a pack of ballpark hot dogs right on the back of my head. So I just, I, I, I've, I maybe one day I will, but right now I've, I've not done it yet. Maybe one day, maybe one day. Just don't bring no mustard, amen. And uh, But we, we've got some folks around here that they like to shave their head and, and everything. God bless them, man. That's, that's wonderful. Uh, but when Job did it, he wasn't doing it for a fashion statement. He wasn't doing it for hygiene. He wasn't doing it because he's tired of buying shampoo. He did it for one reason and one reason alone because it expressed to the world his brokenness. Uh, it was associated with the idea of shame. In the Old Testament, you'd read times where men uh, would shave their head as a statement of public contrition. It was them saying, I'm broken, I'm humiliated, I'm shamed by my situation. Oftentimes it was associated with sin. I don't necessarily think that's the case in Job's situation, but I do think what he is doing is humbling himself. And he's reminding himself and he's expressing to everyone around that this ain't about him, that he ain't nothing, that he ain't nobody, but this is about the Lord. You know, we have to have humility to worship. You know why that is, right? Because uh, if we ain't humble, we don't even think we need worship. Now, somebody's going to say, well, preacher, does that mean if I don't worship, I'm prideful? Yes. Yes, it does. If we don't worship God, it's because we're prideful. It's because we think we don't need worship. It's because we think that God's not worthy of worship. Why else would we not worship? See, the truth is, when we worship, it, it is a full-throated expression of our nothingness and God's everything. And when I talk about worship, by the way, let me say, I'm not talking about shouting, although I don't mind if you shout when you worship. I ain't talking about singing, although I don't mind if you sing while you worship. But I'm talking about fellowship and communion with God, basking in His glory and acknowledging and confessing our nothingness before Him. Uh, you know what it is? It's spending time, how can I say this, marinating in His almightiness. He shaved His head because He wanted to acknowledge His humility. So when He goes to worship, the only thing that holds Him back is He says, there's some things that I've got to get right before God before I can worship Him rightly. He wasn't worried about putting on the perfect clothes. He wasn't worried about, uh, you know, uh, cleaning himself up in a perfect way. In fact, one could probably suggest that he looked worse when he got ready to worship than he did before he got ready to worship. But what he did was he prepared himself for communion with Almighty God. So I see his promptness. I see his preparation. But then I see his posture. The Bible says this, he fell down upon the ground and he worshiped. Now, the first thing I notice is he lowered his body. Now, this again speaks to the idea of humility. Uh, a person would often in the Old Testament, in fact, invariably in the Old Testament, when they were faced with God, they would always fall down as though they were dead. And falling down was an outward expression of adoration and of worship. It was you saying, I am not worthy to be in this person's presence. Why did Job fall down? Well, he fell down because he wanted to remind everyone else that what he had in his life, he wasn't worthy of. Even, listen, what was left in his life, he was not worthy of. 
Isn't that true? Look what he says later on. I ain't even preaching it yet, but but it said, later on he says, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What he's saying is, everything that's gone, God gave me. And everything that's still here, God gave me. He is bowing himself in contrition and in humility. But then notice this, he lowered his body, but then he lifted his voice. Now again, I, I would say that uh, worship does not necessarily have to be verbalized for God to acknowledge it. We learn this whenever Hannah's praying before the Lord, before the tabernacle in the Old Testament, that she's praying and the Bible explicitly tells us that her lips moved, but she didn't make any noise. And when Eli saw her, he, he thought she was drunk. And you say, preacher, what do we learn from that? Well, two things. One, we learn that if you're worshiping God that way, God can still hear you. Two, we learn folks might think you're drunk. Amen? So, And that does matter. Amen? <laughs> in other words, this whole idea of, of um, you know, boy, how do I even say this correctly? I'm talking about the charismatics, so I ain't trying to mince words, but I'm trying to communicate it accurately. Uh, this this whole wild, expressive sense of worship that is not even is not even coherent is not something that honors God. Uh, and I'm not meaning to imply that, but what I am saying is this: that worship is an intelligent thing, and an intelligent thing. He lifted his voice to the Lord, and we have recorded to us. What he said. He wasn't just howling. He wasn't just laughing. He wasn't just wailing. But he was talking to God. And he was making plain to God what was in his heart. So I see the, the preparation and the posture for his worship. So this is the scene. This is, this is what things look like. If a man walked up in this moment, this is what they would see. They would see a man whose life had fallen apart that goes out, rents his mantle, shaves his head, falls down, and gets ready to worship God. But what's the substance of his worship? What exactly did he say? And what can we learn of worship uh, from what he communicated. Well, look what he says in verse number 21. The first thing he says is this, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. Notice first off with me the perspective that he exhibited. The first thing he says is not about God. The first thing he says is about himself. Now you say, preacher, why is that significant? Well, for one thing, he's going to say two things about God and only one thing about himself. Worship is more about the Lord than it is about us. It's not about what pleases us or what contents us, but rather it's about honoring and glorifying God. But number two, it teaches us this. Why did he deal with himself first? Because he himself needed to be dealt with first. He needed to be reminded of some things. He reminds himself that everything that God took from him, God had given him. He is reminding himself that uh, in his perspective, he has no right to unjustly shake his fist at God. The Bible uses the terminology later, he didn't charge God foolishly. Now what does it mean to charge God foolishly? It doesn't mean like a, like a bull charging someone, and nor does it mean charge in the sense of, of expecting some kind of payment, but it means to lay something to God's account foolishly. In other words, he could have looked at God and he could have said, God, you did this because you hate me. He could have looked at God and said, God, you forgot about me. He could have looked at God and said, God, you don't love me anymore. But that's not what he did. Instead, he said, what I have, everything that I have had has come from God. And I had nothing to begin with and I had no expectation of having anything when I departed this world. He's acknowledging all that was taken from him as merely temporal and merely the blessings of God. 
Worship, if it is to be rightly oriented in our disposition towards God, we first have to be reminded how much of nothing we are. What he's saying is, all this good stuff that you think's been robbed out of my life, I'm not the one that put it there. I wasn't going to take it with me. I'm just a vessel that God is pouring Himself into that He is doing with as He pleases. In other words, we first need to be reminded of just who we are and just who we're not. Uh, humility is part and parcel a part of, of worship. And the reason is because it, it's a prerequisite. Uh, if we're going to treat God the way He's worthy to be treated, we have to understand how lowly we are. If we don't understand that, here's what we'll do. We'll lower God as we attempt to elevate ourselves. The way we elevate God is by lowering ourselves. You say, preacher, where do you find that in your Bible? Well, uh, try this on for size. He must increase. Isn't that what John said? He said, but I must decrease. He didn't say he should increase and I should decrease. But again, he said, he must increase and I must decrease. Now, the first part of that statement is one thing. He could have merely be, been saying that being the incarnate Lord of glory, that it's only natural and it's only necessary and it's only fitting with the providential will of God that He be exalted and elevated. But why did He have to say the second part? I must decrease. Here's what He was saying. The only way there can be more Jesus is if there's less of me. This is the key to real worship. is understanding that the more there is of us, the less there is of Him. And the more there is of Him, the less there is of us. So I see the, the perspective that He exhibited. Number two, I see the providence that He trusted. He says, naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Now you've heard me say this before, but I, I think we always need to say this when we come to the book of Job. One of the things I love, love, love about the book of Job is never once does He give the devil credit for anything. He never says, boy, the devil's been beating up on me. He, he never says, man, the devil's been giving me a hard time. Now, I think we could say with scriptural authority that the devil was beating up on him. Isn't that true? But Charlie, the devil was well, had an active hand in destroying this man's life. I think we could easily say the devil was trying to destroy him. But Job never gives him credit for it. You know why I think that is? There might be things in your life and mine that is the devil at work. But there's probably some things in your life and mine that ain't the devil at work. But there ain't nothing in your life and mine that ain't God at work. He's always working in everything in our life. Now that's not to suggest that He endorses everything we do. It's not to say that He's honored or pleased by all that we do. But it is to say that God is always at work in our lives in every facet of what takes place. Even in our weakness, even in our failure, even in our foolishness, God is working. It could be that what's going on in your life is the devil beating up on you. It could be it's decisions you've made. It could be uh, other people's cruelty and unkindness. But I'll tell you this, no matter what's going on in your life, God's always working in the situation. So He never gives the devil any credit. Instead, He says, you know, it was the Lord that gave. He doesn't say, Brother Larry, He doesn't say, I worked hard for this. Now, he probably had worked hard. No, no doubt he was a hard-working individual. The Bible says that the Lord had increased the substance of his hands, the labor of his hands. God didn't bless laziness in Job's life. Job worked hard and God honored and favored that work and blessed and increased it. And Job could have said, boy, look what I've got. But you know the problem is? How, how broken and how shattered would he have been if he had felt like all of that had been garnered and gained by his hands? 
You know why a lot of people, boy, I want to be careful how I say this. Uh, it'd break my heart. Listen, if I had a bunch of money in the stock market, and I don't, uh, I could have said if I had a bunch of money and stopped there. Amen. But <laughs> if I had a bunch of money, uh, and I don't, and if I had a bunch of money in the stock market, and I don't, but I can see how when some of these financial crises take place and people have their entire living in this thing. I was reading an article the other day, and some of y'all won't know or care about any of these names, but this Robinhood app, this thing that's been used to sort of streamline and open up trading for uh, for people, and, and their motto was that they were giving access uh, to the market to the average consumer. Turns out they were actually giving access to the consumer for the market after it was all said and done. But they, you know, they, they're basically saying, you know, that what they did is a little app and you can invest on this app. And I was reading an article the other day of a young man that was in his 20s and he had been uh, dabbling in it and putting money in and this and that. And something got kind of wonky on his account. And they sent him an email and they said, uh, we're sorry, Mr. So-and-so, but you're going to have to pay like $175,000 or something to get your account back in the black. And and he, he had lost something like over $750,000. And he uh, he sent him an email and, and said, you know, please tell me what's, you know, what's going on, what's happened. I have no idea and everything. They sent him back one of these, we're sorry, our customer service is not open right now, and da, da, da. And this young man, thinking he had dug himself a hole that was really just a grave, he took his own life. And the sad truth is, you know, the very evening that he took his life, Brother Ken, they sent an email that said, there's an error with your account, we've corrected it now, and he owed absolutely nothing. But I thought to myself, you know, I, I, I've walked this earth long enough to know there's no amount of money that you can't recover from, especially in our economy and life that, that you know, the, the state, state that we're in. Uh, money don't even mean anything anymore anyway. It's all just monopoly money. But to somebody like that, He's thinking his whole life has fallen apart. You know, when your whole life is wrapped up in the things of this world, and then the things of this world burn up, you're going to burn up with it. And what I mean by that is not to suggest the loss of your salvation or your spiritual, you know, worth with God. I'm not talking, but I'm saying that, that your whole mind and your whole peace and your whole sense of purpose and everything, if you build on this world, then when the Winds and the rains come and your house don't stand, you'll be washed away with it. And there lies the path to despair. That's what happened to this young man. But you know, Job, he didn't say, I gave. He didn't say, I built. He didn't say, I worked. He said, the Lord gave. Job had worked, but he recognized that he wouldn't have had any of this had God not permitted it. And then he said, the Lord hath taken away. And you know, there's peace on both sides of that statement. There's peace to say, you know, I didn't do this. God gave this to me. It ain't mine in the first place. And if you have that peace, then the day that it's taken away, you won't say the devil took it from me. You won't say the bankers took it from me. <laughs> you won't say the thieves took it from me. You know, every one of these things, except for the death of Job's children, all the rest of them were perpetrated and carried out by human hands. He doesn't say the Sabians have taken away. He doesn't say the Chaldeans have taken away. He says, the Lord hath taken away. When you ground your worship in the providence of God and recognize that you're not worshiping God because you think that He's done something worthy of it, you're worshiping God because He is worthy of it, and that everything you've got in your life you've been given by the blessing of God, that's a worship that'll stand even in the darkest of times. So I see the providence that He trusted, and then I see the praise that He proclaimed. He says, blessed be the name of the Lord. You know how maybe we could say that? 
if if I was to say the opposite of that, cursed be the name of Linda, right? And Charlie says that sometimes, but I'm just saying it for a I'm just saying it for an illustration for the message. I don't feel that way. I can't say whether Charlie does or not. But if I if I say cursed be the name of Linda, what I'm saying, what I'm doing, I'm slandering you. I'm slandering you. I'm saying your your name is 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 ill favored. I'm saying that your name brings misfortune and bad things and that your name is a curse and that I desire a curse upon you. Now let's reverse engineer that. When you say, blessed be the name of the Lord, what are you saying? I think we could maybe say it this way. I've got no complaints with Him. I've got no criticisms of Him. (laughs) Think about what Job says here. Job says, you know, I didn't have any of this when I showed up. God give it to me. and I didn't expect to have any of it. When I left, God took it away. And you know in all of it, I ain't got no criticisms of God. He's been good every step of the way. He praised God predicated on His goodness and His grace. Not upon His circumstances being palatable or pleasant or desirable, but rather upon the very character and nature of God. He says, you know, in all this, God was still good. So I see the substance of His worship. But then finally, and these are just things I'm going to mention. I'm not even going to preach them. Look at verse 22. The Bible says, in all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. So what was the success of his worship? When we talk about the setting of his worship, the the scene of it, the promptness, then Job arose. It was immediate and instinctive. The preparation, he, he rent his mantle. That's what he exposed and he shaved his head. That's what he expressed, his honesty, his humility. We see his posture. He lowered his body. He fell down upon the ground. He humbled himself before God. And he lifted his voice. He communicated to God what was in his heart and in his mind. We looked at the substance of his worship. The perspective that he exhibited. You know, this was all God's in the first place. The providence that he trusted. He said, the Lord gave it. The Lord took it away. And the praise he proclaimed. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But here's the question. What did he have at the end of all of it? Worship is only good if it's accepted. What was the difference between Cain and Abel's worship? Now, we could catalog all of the distinct differences, but we could summarize it by saying this. The Lord rejected one and He respected the other. We don't, we're not told anywhere that, that, you know, uh, Abel did a more skilled job in the slaying of his sheep than Cain did in the preparation of his of his vegetables. We're not told that anywhere. We're not told that Abel put more work into the raising of the sheep than Cain did in the raising of the vegetables. The only thing we're told about that sacrifice is that God respected one and He rejected the other. So the value of worship is predicated, number one, it's based, number one, on how God views it. You know, I would say this, the success of Job's worship is expressed in this way. It was a pleasing thing. It pleased God. Now you say, how do you know that, preacher? Well, because we've got to remember who it is writing the Word of God. It's not just whoever pinned this down. It's not just Job's testimony, but it's God Himself through the person of the Holy Spirit. And He said about this worship, in all this, Job sinned not. It pleased God the way that Job worshipped Him. You know, we think we have to get everything perfect about our worship. And the truth is we don't. We have to get these fundamental things. We have to be humbled. We have to be honest. I'll tell you this. When I pray, I'd hate to hear my prayers the way that God hears them. Well, let me take that back. God hears them and they're wonderful. I'd hate to hear them the way the Holy Ghost hears my prayers. Because He's the one that takes and makes them fit for the ears of God. 
And man, what a mess they must be. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll be praying and I and about halfway through I'll say, man, what am I even saying? What am I even saying? I mean, I know in my heart what I'm trying to say to God, but somewhere it ain't very far, but somewhere between here and here it just gets all mixed up. Our worship doesn't have to be perfect, but it does have to be present. It does have to happen, and it has to be honest, and it has to be humble. And if we'll do that, I think God will be pleased with it. Now, we're not told that anybody else was pleased with it. We're not told that any of his, of his family, or what was left of it, looked and said, boy, what a great guy Job is. In fact, later on, his wife just sort, sort of criticizes him. Commentators still argue about what she's saying, but, but she sort of criticizes him. And his friends later on show up and give him up the road. So nobody seemed to think Job was on real good standing with God, except God. You know to Job, that's all that mattered. That was enough. So I see it was a pleasing thing. Number two, I notice it was a protective thing. I think it's easy to overlook this. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Have you ever asked yourself, why didn't Job sin? Why did he not charge God foolishly? Well, there's a very simple answer for that. He couldn't. He was too busy worshiping God. Did you know that worshiping and criticizing of God are mutually exclusive of each other? You're not going to do one while you do the other. You're not going to criticize God and worship God at the same time. Job could have laid down in his misery and allowed himself to marinate in his problems and he probably would have rose up and cursed God. But instead, he did the right thing. When things fell apart, first thing he did was go to God and worship Him. I would say it was a protective thing. It kept Job from sinning. Worship will keep you from sin. You know the old saying, and I think it was uh, Billy Sunday made this statement about the uh, Word of God said that uh, the Word of God will either keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Word of God. You know there's some truth to that about real worship as well. Either we're going to worship God and in worshiping God we'll find that is exclusionary of our sin or we're going to commit sin. And you know what that'll do? That'll keep us from the place of worship. I'm saying Job had a choice here and Job made the right one. You want your life to be closer to God, spend time with God and you'll find it harder to wander from God. So I see it was a protective thing. And finally, I want you to notice it was a peace-giving thing. Now this isn't stated in our text, but if we were to read on, in chapter number 2, we would find it is there. And it is not there expressively. It's not there explicitly. It's there implicitly. What you'll read about, if, if you go to the second chapter of the book of Job, is it'll say, again, on a certain day, and it'll start talking about how that uh, Satan came back and, and sought God's permission to persecute Job again. But you know what I find, Brother Larry? I find, I don't know how many days there were, but between that first day and that next day, there had to be a little bit of time. It doesn't say the next day. It says again on a certain day. So that tells me it probably wasn't the very next day that this happened. And you say, preacher, what's the significance about that? The very fact that Job lived from that day to the next day is an indication that something was working about his worship. What would you do if you, all your wealth all of your family, all your kids, all of your everything was stripped away from you. I'll tell you what I would probably do. I'd probably lose my mind. I, I probably would, would go off the deep end, Brother Kent. And I'll tell you this, probably if you couldn't say nothing else, it'd be a fairly decent bet that probably wouldn't be in church serving God and shouting and worshiping the Lord. 
But you know, whenever the Lord makes that statement about Job in chapter 2, nothing changes. He says he's still perfect. He's still upright. He still escheweth evil. <laughs> nothing had changed about Job. You know what that tells me? Job hadn't changed. His problems did not change him. He stayed serving the Lord. That tells me his worship must have given him some peace during that time. Because any of us would probably be prone to fall out and to fall all to pieces. But Job didn't. Job held strong. And you can read on through the book of Job and read about how his life ends. How was it? What was Job's secret to suffering with? What was his secret to standing in the fire? Well, it was simply this. When everything fell apart, He fell on his face and he worshiped God. Let's bow together this evening. Musician's going to come and play. The altar is open. and I don't know what God may have spoke to you about, but whatever he did, there is a place down at this altar for you to speak to him and to deal with him about that thing. Father, bless this invitation. I pray glorify your son. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Jesus' name with our heads bowed, our eyes closed. Miss Connie's going to play. The altar is open and if God's spoken to your heart, I want you to come tonight. Want you to deal with him. If he's dealt with you, you come deal with him. If he spoke to you, it must be important. Don't ignore him. Come speak to him if he's dealt with you. These are praying. We have all the time we need. If God touched your heart, I want you to come tonight.